0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the November 21st edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarron and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The Court of Appeals said that the owner of a construction company was not liable in tort for his employees' injuries. Here's what happened in the case of Charles DeFreitz versus Robert Clark. Clark is the sole owner of the company R.G. Clark Construction. He hired his own construction company to build a duplex on property he owned in Ukiah. Clark visited the property most days during construction and stayed for about an hour, but he did not perform manual labor at the site. Defrates was working as a foreman for R.G. Clark Construction. One of his duties as foreman was to make sure that there was a safe environment for the workers. Before anyone began to place roofing paper on the roof, Clark told DeFreitz to construct scaffolding for safety. Clark provided scaffolding planks and lumber from his home to be used for this purpose. DeFreitz told Clark that he did not want to construct the scaffolding because it would not be safe and there was not enough material. Defrates instead asked Clark to provide roof jacks for the roof construction. Clark replied that his crew would work safely without roof jacks and refused to honor his request. Later, Defrates slipped and fell while working on the roof and received his work comp benefits for the injury. Defrates also sued Clark individually for personal injury. Clark moved for summary judgment on the ground that workers' compensation was DeFreitz's sole remedy. The trial court agreed, finding that there is no evidence proffered that Clark owned or supplied the materials for the scaffolding in his individual capacity. Summary judgment was granted and DeFreitz appealed. The Court of Appeal in the unpublished opinion of Charles DeFreitz versus Robert Clark sustained the dismissal. On appeal, DeFreitz argued that Clark was personally responsible for his injuries because Clark, in his capacity as the person who hired R.G. Clark Construction, supplied defective safety equipment to the job site. The Court of Appeal disagreed and relied on the Prevet Doctrine in support of their opinion. Generally under this doctrine, an employee of an independent contractor, such as DeFrates may not bring a tort suit against the hirer of the independent contractor. Here, Defrates received workers' compensation for his injuries. Clark, as hirer, is presumed to have delegated the responsibility for the safety of the workers to the independent contractor R.G. Clark Construction. In sum, Clark, as hirer, did not assume a lasting duty towards the employees on the job site when he provided scaffolding. The trial court did not err in granting summary judgment. The Court of Appeal reversed the WCAB findings on apportionment and injury. Here's what happened in the unpublished opinion of Larry Sallett v. WCAB. Larry Sallett was employed by the city of Englewood as a police officer. He suffered multiple industrial injuries during the course of that employment and retired from the police force. He then worked for Alpha Industries as an information technology technician. He began to experience problems in his hand, leading to a second claim against Alpha Industries in 2003, based upon continuous trauma to his neck, back, and upper extremities. Claims against both employers were consolidated for trial. The work comp judge found that Sallett sustained all the injuries he alleged against the city of Inglewood except for his claim of irritable bowel syndrome. In the Alpha Industries case, the WorkComp judge found that he sustained injury to his bilateral upper extremities. On reconsideration, Sallett complained that the fibromyalgia injury found against the city should have been apportioned to Alpha Industries, and that the WorkComp judge's finding of no irritable bowel syndrome injury was not supported by substantial evidence. The WCAB denied reconsideration and adopted and incorporated the work comp judge's report without further comment on the issues. The Court of Appeal reversed in the unpublished opinion of Larry Sallett versus WCAB. The work comp judge based the findings of no industrial irritable bowel syndrome injury on two grounds. First, the judge found that Petitioner did not expressly testify that he suffered from the symptoms associated with irritable bowel syndrome. Secondly, the judge explained that Dr. Levine also did not specifically state which uh, bowel syndrome symptom petitioner experienced. However, the Court of Appeal noted that Salat testified he experienced gastrointestinal problems and had been diagnosed and treated for irritable bowel syndrome. And petitioner's treating physician diagnosed the disease as well the court concluded that it could not find a rational basis for disbelieving either petitioner's testimony or the reports of Drs. Levine and Leone. Similarly, after a review and discussion of the medical evidence on the topic of apportionment of the fibromyalgia disability, the court found that the apportionment was not supported by substantial evidence. The board's decision was annulled. There is no new or novel point of law resulting from this case. It is essentially a reweighing of the medical evidence that favored Larry Sallett. Prime Healthcare Services accused Kaiser Permanente and the Service Employees International Union of conspiring to monopolize the Southern California healthcare market in an antitrust lawsuit filed in federal court and the 68-page complaint implicates a California legislature thought to be Senator Ed Hernandez from West Covina. Plaintiffs allege the legislature was behind a state Department of Health investigation, which Prime claims was unwarranted. Prime Vice President and General Counsel said that Senator Hernandez had a financial interest in Kaiser and financial relationship with SEIU. The suit points to $30,000 the union and affiliates gave Hernandez during his last election campaign. Prime also lashed out at California Watch, which reported state findings of overbilling at Prime Hospitals last May. Prime claims California Watch has cherry-picked information favorable to SEIU and distorts the facts as they relate to Prime HealthCare. Prime says that these activities were aimed at giving the SEIU leverage in union negotiations with Prime and to preclude Prime from opening more hospitals in Southern California, which would limit competition for Kaiser. California Watch editorial director defended his organization's reporting. The suit also alleges that the California Watch website has acted as a publicity arm of SEIU by pumping out stories critical of Prime. Kaiser, SEIU, Hernandez, and California Watch all denied the allegations. A Kaiser spokeswoman called the lawsuit puzzling. SEIU called the challenge a frivolous lawsuit aimed at hiding Prime Healthcare's fraudulent practices. Prime is seeking unspecified money damages, but the thrust of the complaint is injunctive relief. And now our fraud report. A former Ontario resident was charged with two felony counts of insurance fraud and one misdemeanor count of making a false report of a criminal offense. In June, members of the San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office began an investigation into allegations of possible workers' comp insurance fraud involving 32-year-old Russell Tate Allen McKinnon. McKinnon reportedly sustained an industrial injury in December 2010 when he claimed he was the victim of a robbery on the job and was assaulted with a knife, causing superficial injuries to his right arm. McKinnon reported the incident to the Ontario Police Department and he was ultimately provided benefits through the company's work comp insurance. Later investigation evidence showed that there was no robbery. McKinnon later admitted to making false allegations of robbery to cover up his loss of company money. An arrest warrant was issued and McKinnon has now been arraigned at the Rancho Cucamonga Superior Court. He was released on his own recognizance and is scheduled for a preliminary hearing on December 5. The case will be prosecuted by Deputy District Attorney David Simon. A Yucaipa couple has been charged with fraud and conspiracy. In July, members of the San Bernardino County District Attorney's Office opened an investigation into allegations of possible fraud involving Lois and Ventura of Ucaipa after receiving a WE-TIP report of possible fraud. An investigation revealed that Ventura had suffered an industrial injury in 2010 and subsequently received work comp benefits. At the same time, Ventura became the co-owner of a local business along with Keith Lloyd McBride, also of Yucaipa. Ventura was working at this business while continuing to receive cash benefits as well as medical benefits through the workers' compensation program. During a subsequent interview with her partner, Keith McBride, it was determined that not only was McBride the co-owner of the business, but also Ventura's boyfriend. Even though he had knowledge of not only the work comp cash benefits that Ventura was receiving, but also knowledge of Ventura's involvement as part owner of the business, and he misrepresented the facts of this case during the criminal investigation. He told investigators that Ventura was not part owner of the business and that he was the sole owner. His attempted cover-up ended up getting him involved in the criminal case. Both Lois Ventura and Keith McBride were charged with workers' compensation insurance fraud and conspiracy to commit a crime, as well as failing to obtain workers' comp insurance for the new business. Ventura and McBride were arraigned at the San Bernardino Superior Court and each released on their own recognizance pending trial. The case will be prosecuted by Deputy District Attorney David Simon. A new report says that Medicare fraud contractors are responsible for a decade of repeated systemic failures. A new Inspector General's report says that these contractors are paid tens of millions of taxpayer dollars to detect fraudulent Medicare claims. Yet, they are using inaccurate and inconsistent data that makes it extremely difficult to catch fraudulent bills submitted for payment. According to the report, Medicare's contractor system has morphed into a complicated labyrinth with one set of contractors paying claims, and another combing through those claims in an effort to stop an estimated $60 billion a year in fraud. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Inspector General's report found repeated problems among the fraud contractors for over a decade and systemic failures by federal health officials to adequately supervise them. Health officials are supposed to look at key criteria to find out whether contractors are effectively doing their job. The contractors are supposed to detect fraud by checking for spikes in basic data, such as what type of service was given, how much of it was given, and how much it cost. But contractors were reporting their progress in different ways, and some of the information they turned over to federal health officials about their performance was inaccurate. The same issues were identified 10 years ago, by Inspector General investigators, and dozens of reports in the past decade also have found these problems. Medicare officials have repeatedly said the latest system of fraud contractors was designed to fix the prior problems, yet critics say nagging problems persist. Investigators found that one contractor referred only two cases of potential fraud to Medicare officials between 2005 and 2008, and another that did not refer any at all. They may have no incentive to refer cases because they are not paid contingency fees for doing so. And in medical news, generic drugs would have an easier path to U.S. markets under a bill soon to be introduced in the Senate, according to Senator Jeff Bingman, a sponsor of the bill. The bill also has the support of Republican Senator David Vitter. It would amend the 1984 Hatch-Waxman Act, which was supposed to empower generic drug companies by allowing them to challenge weak pharmaceutical patents. If the generic company challenged a drug patent and won, it was rewarded with a 180-day window of exclusivity to sell a generic. However, often brand-name companies settle the patent lawsuit and make a deal to circumvent the early arrival of the generic. Meanwhile, no other generic may come to market. In some cases, the brand-name company paid the generic company to delay production, a type of deal the Federal Trade Commission calls pay-for-delay. The FTC, which has been fighting the deals, says they were, there were 28 pay-for-delay deals in the 2011 physical year that resulted in slower generic entry. The U.S. agency says... The deals violate antitrust law if brand-name pharmaceuticals pay generic drug makers to stay off the market. It has had mixed success before the courts in opposing these deals. The Bingaman-Vitter bill would permit more than one generic company to come to market, which negates the incentive for a pay for delay deal. And in financial news, the state fund plans to lay off more than 500 employees in Glendale next year, part of an overall strategy to cut up to 1,800 jobs statewide. They have already closed the Burbank Claims Processing Office, moving most of the 200 jobs to Fresno and Redding. And dozens of workers protested the layoffs outside the firm's 6 Floor Claim Adjustment Office in Glendale. Some protesters say that the chief executive, Tom Rowe, lied to them. Employees said they were told that clerical workers with less than 15 years of seniority would be laid off. One protester, Carlos Juarez, has worked for the company for 11 years, and he said he will likely be let go. He has a wife and three children to support and is worried about his family will make ends meet. Marina Stranjavia, who has also worked for the firm for 11 years, said her job is also on the chopping block. She lives with her daughter, who recently graduated from college and landed an unpaid internship. About 20 people at a time took part in the lunchtime protest, with workers rotating in and out. Protesters pointed out Roe's $450,000 annual salary, with up to a 30% bonus, as a better place to cut expenses. And in other news, the DWC announced that registration for its 19th annual educational conference is now open. The conference will take place February 23rd and 24th at the Los Angeles Sheraton Gateway Hotel and March 5th and 6th at the Oakland Marriott Center Hotel. Attendee, exhibitor, and sponsor registration forms may be downloaded from the DWC Educational Conference webpage. Registration forms are also available at the conference website and the front counters of the 24 DWC district offices in the state. Registration flyers were recently mailed to the more than 8,000 names on its conference mailing list. Registrants will receive a postcard confirming their registration once received. This annual event is the largest workers' compensation training in the state. Claims administrators, attorneys, medical providers, return-to-work specialists, employers, and others can learn firsthand about the most recent developments in the system. The conference is applying for continuing educational credits for attorneys, claims adjusters, rehabilitation counselors, case managers, disability management, and qualified medical examiner professionals. The DWC expects 800 registrants and more than 50 exhibitors at each location. Attendees and exhibitors are encouraged to register early. A partial list of scheduled topics includes new lien regulations, lien issues and cases, case law update, The Olga v. Blackledge cases, the WCAB reconsideration process, medical provider networks, and medical control, apportionment, discovery in workers' compensation, DEU rating workshop, opioids in workers' compensation, and top 10 litigation tips from the judicial perspective. Stanley Zacks has decided to retire as the president and CEO of Zenith Insurance Company effective January 1st. Mr. Zacks will be 75 years old in 2012 and has been the CEO of Zenith since 1977. He is responsible for developing Zenith from a small market insurer into a workers' compensation specialist insurer in the United States focused on quality service. Zenith is now a wholly-owned subsidiary of Fairfax Financial Holdings. Jack Miller, who joined Zenith in 1997 and is currently an executive vice president and the COO of Zenith and the president of its operating insurance subsidiary, will become the president and CEO of Zenith in his place. Mr. Zacks will continue to act as chairman of Zenith and will chair the Fairfax Advisory Board. Mr. Zacks expressed his thanks to all of the employees of Zenith who helped him create one of the preeminent specialty insurance businesses in North America. He believes that Zenith will continue to flourish in the years to come. After his retirement, he says he will be spending more time with his family and grandchildren when he is not needed as a consultant by Fairfax. And that's all our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foltz with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. And please drop by again next week for more news.